Well, once again, I say good morning to you, and it truly is a great privilege that we have this morning that we get to worship our risen Savior. And so unlike the women who rose early to go to the tomb, you see, they did not know for certain that they would be meeting with the risen Lord. They were not walking to the tomb with joy. They had sadness and grief and uncertainty about the future. But we, we have not risen early this morning to go visit a tomb. We have risen early this morning with confidence, knowing that we would be meeting with a risen Lord. And truly, He is meeting with us this very morning. Do you realize that? He really is meeting with us. We really are in the presence of the risen Lord. But I'm asked to ask this question. Did you wake this morning with joy in your heart to meet with the risen Lord? Or has your amazement at the resurrection of Christ been reduced to simply a creedal statement? Remember, it was said of Christ that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And what was that joy that was set before him? Was it not his own resurrection from the grave and in knowing that his resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection of all of his people? You see, our Savior is a joyful Savior. He has been resurrected and he has been ascended and he has been coronated. That is, he has been crowned Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But listen to this. He will likewise cause his people to be resurrected unto eternal life and his people will be glorified and reign forever with him. And so because our Savior is full of joy, we too also will be full of joy. And not just in the future will we be full of joy, but we are to be full of joy now. We are to enter in to the joy of the Lord's salvation now. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning, is that the implications of the resurrection of Christ are not just for the future, but they are for us today. And the reason that I believe that this is important for us is because I think sometimes that particular aspect of the doctrine of the resurrection is overlooked. You see, usually when the resurrection of Christ is preached and spoken about, the focus tends to be directed in two particular places, and rightly so. The first is the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ. All four Gospels record the historical fact of the resurrection. Paul, in his preaching, makes it clear that the fact of the historical resurrection of Christ is a matter of first importance. In other words, no resurrection, no gospel. A gospel devoid of the resurrection of Christ is not the biblical gospel, and therefore, no gospel at all. Furthermore, we see throughout the book of Acts that the that the historical fact of Christ's resurrection was an essential component of the gospel message. In fact, as you read through the book of Acts, there is more emphasis placed on the resurrection of Christ than on the death of Christ in the preaching of the apostles. And I think that should be reflected in our preaching as well, and oftentimes it is not. Listen to what Paul says with regard to the importance in believing in the resurrection of Christ. In Romans 10.9 he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And so we must emphasize the fact of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And I think 1 Corinthians 15 declares most clearly why we must emphasize this fact in our preaching and believing of the gospel. Listen to verses 14 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Here it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that is, died in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are We are of all people most to be pitied. Then this statement here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we must establish the fact of the bodily resurrection of Christ. The second place we often go when we think of the resurrection of Christ, as we preach about the the doctrine of the resurrection, is to show how the resurrection of Christ guarantees the future resurrection of all who believe in Christ and follow him. It is because of the resurrection of Christ that we can say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is the future hope of resurrection that gives us the hope and strength to stand firm in the midst of persecution and hardships that we experience in this life. We see this clearly in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, which says, But our citizenship is in heaven, And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And when you read the next verse, Philippians 4.1, he says, Therefore stand firm in the Lord. And so it is this hope of the future resurrection that gives us the ability to stand firm in the Lord. Also, it is the future hope of resurrection that gives us the ability to encourage ourselves and one another in the face of the great enemy, death. Knowing that our risen and living Savior has power over death and hell and the grave. And so oftentimes when we think of the resurrection of Christ, we tend to to look backwards and we tend to look forward. We tend to look backwards to the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ and how the gospel is grounded in that reality. And as I said, we ought to do this because the Scripture spends a great deal of time establishing the historical fact of the resurrection and how important it is for the gospel message. And so we ought to look back at the historical fact of the resurrection. Secondly, we tend to look forward with hope, realizing that because Christ was raised from the dead, so too we will be raised from the dead on the last day. And this too is something we ought to do because the scripture likewise spends a great deal of time pointing us to believe and set our hope on this future reality. And so we are to do as Romans 8.17 reminds us, which is to realize that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the future glory that is to be revealed to us. And so with regards to the doctrine of the resurrection, we look back and we look Forward, because the scripture demands that we do both. 
But as I've studied the scriptures, I have begun to see more and more and more that the scripture demands that we do more than just look back at the resurrection and look forward to our future hope. In fact, the scriptures apply the doctrine of the resurrection to the whole of the Christian life. We are also to understand that the resurrection of Christ has many implications on our present reality and the blessed state that we have as believers. And to show this, I would invite you now to turn with me in the scriptures to the book of Ephesians. And notice with me chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So in verses 1 through, t- 1 through 2 of Ephesians, we have a greeting. But after the greeting, we have one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture in verses 3 through 14. Where we'll, what we see is actually a long praise of God. Notice how verse 3 begins. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is, Paul is blessing God. He is praising God. Then notice how verse 14 ends. All of this is what? To the praise of His glory. And so Paul praises God at length in this passage. And what is it that he praises God for? Well, notice verse 3 once again. It is because He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as you go through this passage, we see Paul enumerating those blessings one after the other. We see the blessing of election and predestination and adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of our sins and knowledge and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So we see all of these spiritual blessings and Paul praises God for these blessings. But what becomes increasingly evident as you study through this passage is not so much the spiritual blessings, but the source of those blessings. The the repeated theme throughout this passage is the theme of union with Christ. Notice once again the passage. Notice verse 3. We see that it is in Christ. Notice verse 4. It says He chose us in Him, that is, Christ. Notice verse 5. It is for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, It is in Him, that is Christ, we have redemption. Verse 9, Which He set forth in Christ. Verse 10, To unite all things in Him, that is Christ. Verse 11, In Him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, It is to hope in Christ. And finally, verse 13, it is in Him. And so, we see that the Christian life is all about being in Christ. And it is this great reality that causes Paul to praise God in verses 3 through 14 and then leads him to prayer in verses 15 through 23. Notice with me this prayer of Paul. And we'll read verses 15 through 23, and then back up and make some comments about it. 
Verse 15, this is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Okay, so why is Paul praying? Well, look again at verse 15. He says, for this reason. What reason? He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He is praying because he has heard that the glorious realities that he, that he prays God for in verses 3 through 14 are being realized by the Ephesian believers. And what a great encouragement that must have been to the Apostle Paul. But in classic Paul fashion, what does he do? He is always urging believers to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's always pushing us and commanding us and exhorting us to press forward to realize more and more how blessed we are if we are in Christ. What petition does he make on behalf of the Ephesian believers? Notice verse 17. That their knowledge of Christ would grow. Notice verse 18. It says that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. And I so appreciate that language there. Brothers and sisters, our growth in the knowledge of Christ is never to be merely a growth in head knowledge. But it is always to result in a growth in our love for Christ. And then, once again, in classic Paul fashion, he urges believers to consider the glories of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers. We need to have the gospel preached to us over and over and over again if we would grow up in grace. But turn your attention now to verses 19 through 20. And this is where I want to focus with you for a few minutes. And so verse 19 is a continuation of the thought started in verse 18 where Paul is praying that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesian believers would be enlightened. And in verse 19 we see that one of the things that he wants the Ephesian believers to understand is what? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So Paul wants us to understand the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, believe, towards us who believe. And he then goes on to explain what that power is. This great power toward us is according to what? To the working of his great might. What, kind, what type of might? What kind of might? The very might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, do you realize the greatness of what that verse is teaching us, what it's saying? Saying the very same power that God worked in raising up Christ from the dead is the same exact power that is at work in you today. That's what he's saying there. We see here that it is the power that is now presently today at work in us as God's people is the same power that was at work in the very resurrection of Christ from the dead. The same power that God worked in Christ is the same power that God works in us. And not just at the moment of our glorification, but that power is at work in us right now. This is the same power that is at work in us throughout the entirety of our salvation. It's not just our glorification that we see this power at work. It's through the entire ordo salutis, the entire order of salvation, we see this power at work. You see, it is by virtue of our union with Christ, that's the theme of Ephesians 1, it's by virtue of our union with Christ that we become partakers in the very resurrection of Christ. I want to quickly illustrate this to you by taking you through some key realities in your life if you have been saved, if you are a Christian, and show you how the resurrection of Christ has played a key role in each of those realities. First, the doctrine of regeneration. This doctrine is also called the doctrine of the new birth. Jesus declared that if you would enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. To be a Christian, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. Now, what does this have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Everything. Notice with me in the very next section of Ephesians, as Paul works out the implications of the power of God that was at work in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. Here, Paul declares that all men prior to salvation were dead in their trespasses and sins. But notice down in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, resurrected us. By grace you have been saved, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see how those verses are the very outworking of Ephesians 1, 19 and 20? Because of our union with Christ, we have been resurrected. We have gone from spiritual death. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 1, 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like Ephesians 1, right? According to his great mercy, he has caused us, what? To be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our very re regeneration, our, our new birth, is by the virtue, by the power of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so we see our regeneration is a result of our union with Christ in his resurrection from the dead. In the regeneration of a sinner, we see the very resurrecting power of God displayed. John Calvin writes this following as he comments on Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He says, and certainly the power of God is wonderfully displayed when we are brought from death to life. And when from being the children of hell, we become the children of God and heirs of eternal life. And so we see how the resurrection plays such a key role in our regeneration. 
which is a present reality for you if you are a Christian. A second great present reality in the life of every Christian is the doctrine of justification. In order to be a Christian, you must be justified. That is, you must be legally declared righteous by God. Now, what does this doctrine, this doctrine of justification, have to do with the resurrection? Everything. Notice with me, uh, flip over to Romans chapter 4. And notice with me verses 24 and 25. There it says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so, again, here we see how important our union with Christ is. Christ was delivered up on account of our trespasses and raised on account of our justification. In other words, our sin was the reason for his death, and our justification was the reason for his resurrection. In his death, he identified with us in such a way that our punishment became his. So also in his resurrection, he identified with us in such a way that his vindication, his justification, became ours. And just as his, just as his resurrection declared his vindication... So also his resurrection declares that all who are in union with him are also vindicated. He was raised on account of our justification. Christ was vindicated when he was raised from, raised from the dead. You see that? Because he was vindicated and because we have union with him, we also are vindicated, justified. Romans 8.1 says it this way, And there is therefore now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, you are also vindicated. You are justified. You are declared righteous by God in the same way he declared Christ righteous when he raised him from the dead. And so we see once again how in, in that present reality of our justification, the resurrection doctrine is so, so key. Third, a third great present reality in the life of every Christian is the doctrine of sanctification. By virtue of our salvation, we have been given new hearts or new natures that are now enabled to put off the old and put on the new by the Spirit of God. And, and if you are a Christian, you are in this synergistic process of being sanctified progressively into the very image of Christ. Now, what does this doctrine, this doctrine of sanctification, have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Everything. And now there's many, many passages we can turn to to show this, but notice with me in Romans chapter 6. And we'll read together verses 4 through 11. It says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. And notice that the the union with Christ that is so evident in this passage. So we're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, union, you see that, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I think you can clearly see that connection there. It is by virtue of our union with Christ that we have been set free from the dominion of sin, thereby enabling us to walk in newness of life. Jesus' resurrection is the power of our sanctification. The immeasurably great power whereby God raised us in Christ and whereby he is conforming us to the image of Christ accords, as Ephesians 1 tells us, with the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so we see in those three present realities for the Christian, in our regeneration, in our justification, and in our sanctification, we see that the doctrine of the resurrection is of critical importance. It's not just something that we look forward to. You see that? It's something that's a present reality for us now. We have been resurrected. We have been raised unto new life. Revelation 20 talks about the first resurrection as opposed to the second resurrection. If you are a Christian, you have been raised. You have been resurrected. And because of that, your future resurrection, your bodily resurrection is guaranteed. But that also means this. If you have not been resurrected, if you have not been born again, if you have not been saved, your future resurrection uh, unto glory is not guaranteed. In fact, your future resurrection is unto damnation. You see that. So unless you experience the first resurrection, you will not experience the second resurrection. It's kind of the opposite, right? Those who are not in Christ, they experience the first death and the second death. See that? But we, if we are Christians, we don't experience the second death, but we do experience the second resurrection. So in conclusion, I trust that you have seen that the resurrection of our Lord is central to the entire message of Scripture. And that the implications of the resurrection extend beyond looking back on it as a historical fact and looking forward to our future resurrection. Although both of those are absolutely necessary for our lives. You see, the, resurre the resurrection of Christ ultimately gets at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. If I had to summarize the entire message of the Bible, uh, there, there's different ways that I could approach that, but I think perhaps one of the best ways to summarize the Bible is always making that, um, that statement, right? There's, there's two types of people, those who are lost, those who are saved, okay? In other words, there are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, that there's no third category of people that the Bible mentions. You are either represented by Adam or you are represented by Christ. The Bible summarizes it like this. In Adam, you have death. In Christ, 
you have life. And isn't that the whole purpose of the resurrection? That Christ is the resurrection and the life. And so being in Christ means that you have resurrection life. And not just an unrealized hope for the future, but that is a present reality in your life. And so if you are a believer here this morning, my prayer for you is the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1. That the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I pray that you would understand that more fully today and worship Christ appropriately because of it. And if you have never trusted in Christ, I leave you with the words of Christ where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he makes this statement. He says, do you believe this? The question is, do you believe this? And I said I, I say that to the unbeliever, but I say that to the believer as well. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ is the resurrection and the life? And that if you live and believe in him, that you will never die. Romans 10.9 once again says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. With this time I would ask you if you would please stand. And we will sing together hymn number 700 and eight, moment by moment.